When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 23, titled Good is Up, wherein we discuss a very powerful metaphor that we've all grown to despise. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid, thank you. Yourself? I am also splendid. Splendid as well. That's high splendosity between us. Uh, what do we got? I'm going to start, as I often do, by reading an iTunes review. In this case, I need your help deciphering it. You ready? Mm-hmm. It's from Strosky. I am threatened by Lexicon Valley's originality. It is so crammed with authenticity, my brain realizes how much work it has to do to provide context for what I'm laughing at. Now, it's clearly a compliment of some kind. I mm-hmm. get that. But when I read this review to Laura, my wife, who is probably the smartest person I know. Well, Mike, everything's relative. <laughs> Come on. She's this, probably the smartest person you know, too. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you that. I'm sorry. Proceed. She was confused by the phrase crammed with authenticity, as was I. Mm-hmm. So please explain. Well, as you know, I spent a lot of my time in the world of marketing where authenticity is uh, deemed a very valuable commodity, kind of like, oh, I don't know, uh, chromium. And many people believe that the way to achieve authenticity is to uh, create it, (laughs) to sort of contrive it. No, it's not quite authentic enough. Can we put more authenticity in there? And I wonder if he's kind of making fun of us, or maybe, maybe this person, he or she, thinks that what sounds so casual and uh, genuine in our broadcast is actually the result of all kinds of behind-the-scenes effort to create the illusion of casual talk. But, (laughs) boy, that's not the case. No. I think what confuses me is that there's the implication of some kind of causal relationship here, right? That Lexicon Valley is crammed with authenticity, his or her brain realizes how much work it has to do to provide context for what they're laughing at. I'm not sure what that causal relationship is exactly. Hmm. I fear I cannot shed light, but I'm going to take this as a genuine compliment, perhaps a little overwrought, 
in which he's saying that there's so much going on and yet presented in a a non-stentorian, non-pedantic way that he just really has to concentrate to enjoy the fruits of our labors. You know, or not, or maybe he just thinks that we're pompous jerks and is (laughs) uh, being ironic. Well, I think I'm going to choose to interpret it the former way. That sounds great to me. All right, today's episode. Here in the United States, if you've been paying attention to the news during the past several weeks, there are two words that you've probably heard over and over and over. It's what they call, for good reason, this fiscal cliff. There will be no deal to avert going over the fiscal cliff. Look, if we go over the fiscal cliff, it will be very bad, hugely bad, hugely negative. So what is the fiscal cliff? I guess it's time I explain to these good people the upcoming fiscal cliff. (laughs) Yeah, five voices on the fiscal cliff, two of whom were... uh, Cartoon characters. The last one was Mr. Burns. <laughs> Who is number three? <laughs> That's Lloyd Blankfine, the CEO Goldman of Goldman Sachs. Sachs. Yeah. He sounds like Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. <laughs> I can't believe this is the guy. Who is the sinister kingpin robber baron puppet master of Wall Street? <laughs> it sounds like a character from Top Cat. Anyway... They're all talking about the same thing. The, uh, what do you call it? Fiscal cliff. Exactly. And, you know, we're not going to debate the politics or the economics of the fiscal cliff, but for the benefit of those who either don't live in the U.S. and therefore haven't followed this or just don't know, can you, Bob, very briefly describe what the phrase fiscal cliff is shorthand for? Uh, Yeah, it is an automatic series of draconian spending cuts and parallel tax increases, which automatically go into effect if the Republicans in the House of Representatives and the president cannot come up with a grand bargain or even a petty bargain about spending and taxes in the next uh, few days, actually. Yeah, a couple of weeks. And we should point out that the phrase, the fiscal cliff, was used back in February of this year by Ben Bernanke. He's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He used it during testimony in front of the House Financial Services Committee. Here's what he said. I think you also have to protect the recovery in the near term. Under current law, on January 1st, 2013, there's going to be a massive fiscal cliff of uh, large spending cuts and tax increases. Now, Bernanke didn't coin the phrase. It's actually been around for years, and a lot of people have misreported that. But it was his invoking of it this year in connection with this particular set of circumstances that pushed it into common use in the media. And since the election ended, it's pretty much all we hear. Something you hear almost as often is the qualification that it's not really a cliff. For example... What if the fiscal cliff turns out to be more of a fiscal speed bump? The reality is that the cliff is really more of a slope. Is it a cliff, a curb, a slope? Uh, EPI wants to call it an obstacle course. So here's the question. If it's widely agreed that a cliff is not the right metaphor, why do we like it so much? But wait, don't actually answer that question. First, I want you to forget about the fiscal cliff. Okay, wait a second. It's forgot. No, no. <laughs> Don't think about elephants. (laughs) What were we talking about? I've forgotten. We're not talking about the fiscal cliff right now. We're talking about metaphor. There has been research that suggests we use metaphors 
in our speech about once every 20 to 25 words, which averages out to about five or six a minute. I spoke recently with James Geary. He's the author of a great book that came out last year called I is an Other, The Secret Life of Metaphor and How It Shapes the Way We See the World. He told me that based on his casual analysis of things like newscasts and political speeches and even ordinary conversations, that we, as he put it, woefully underestimate just how prevalent metaphor is. Here's Geary. I would venture to guess that there's probably two or three metaphors for every 10 words that we use. So that gives you an indication of just how pervasive metaphor is. And it's pervasive because whenever we talk about anything abstract, our feelings or concepts, ideas, intuitions, anything that's not literal, (laughs) we have to use a metaphor to describe it. Now, when he's talking about metaphor, he's not really talking about literary metaphor per se. You know, when you when you're really self-conscious about it. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or veils and hills. He's talking about just colorful language, which makes an abstract idea more um, more accessible. Yeah, the sort of literary metaphor that you're talking about is something like all the world's a stage and men and women merely players. That would stand out as metaphor, as a kind of poetic equating of two relatively disparate things during any conversation. What he's talking about here, though, is something so embedded in our language that we don't even notice it as metaphor. Here again is Geary. So when I say, I see what you mean, I see literally absolutely nothing. But in every culture and every language around the world, seeing, actually visually perceiving something, is equated with intellectually knowing something. And the similar expression is, I hear what you're saying. I see what you mean, I hear what you're saying psychologically, emotionally, you're conveying to the other person that you understand them. And we never stop and think, hey, that's a metaphor. And it's actually one of the most ancient, most primal, and most powerful metaphors that we have. And it's not hard to imagine how one might make the leap from physically seeing something or hearing it, absorbing it with your senses, to then correlating that with something more abstract like understanding. Exactly. And you just used another physical metaphor in what you just said, because you said it's not hard to make the leap. (laughs) We have flashes of insight, which is another visual metaphor. And the psychological theory that explains this or purports to explain it is called scaffolding. Even, Even simple expressions like, she's hot, or he leaves me cold, are metaphorical uses of very powerful physical experiences. And the theory of scaffolding posits that We use these physical experiences that every human being, every animal shares, and we add it on, we scaffold it on to those physical experiences, these metaphorical layers, which are really the only way that we can communicate these abstract, emotional, psychological states. I guess unless you're a Vulcan and you do a mind melt. (laughs) Exactly. Mind meld. You can't talk about a mind meld without using a metaphor. Now, the seminal academic treatise, you could say, on this subject is called Metaphors We Live By, by the linguists George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. It was written more than 30 years ago. In that work, which is as much a work of philosophy, really, as it is of linguistics, they showed that many of these metaphors that we have hiding in plain sight in our language are what they call systematic. Let's take the understanding is seeing metaphor that Geary mentioned. It's not just the expression 
I see what you're saying that accounts for that metaphor. It's a whole system of words and expressions in our language. I'll paraphrase from Lakoff and Johnson's book. They mention examples like, it looks different from my point of view. What is your outlook on that? I've got the whole picture. Let me point something out to you, right? You're not actually pointing anything out. And the structure is all based on the metaphor of using visualization to stand in for the idea of conceptualization. Yeah, exactly. Somebody's being clear or not being clear. They're being transparent. They're being opaque. All of this language is metaphorical, and it all participates in building the metaphor understanding is seeing. So again, these are not self-conscious metaphors. If you say to mean that you're going to get in trouble, that something's going to jump up and bite me, that is an intentional metaphor. If you say, I see what you mean, you aren't even aware that you're using a figure of speech. Yeah. And often these abstract concepts, let's take another example, time. It doesn't get any more abstract than that. Time, you old gypsy man, will you not stay? Pull up your caravan just for one day. That's from a poem uh, by Ralph Hodge, an early 20th century British poet. I learned it when I was uh, 10. Time ticking away the moments that make up a dull day, fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. That's from the 20th century poet Roger Waters of the band Pink Floyd. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) You win. I am a uh, nerd loser. So time is so bewildering and abstruse that we've constructed a number of metaphors to help us talk about different qualities, different aspects of time. Now, in our culture, certainly, we think of our own time in our daily lives and in life even more broadly as a finite entity. It will eventually, for all of us, run out, as we say. And so we have the metaphor, as Lakoff and Johnson describe it, time is a limited resource. And you see this reflected given expression in our language. Well, not to push the point or anything, but that poem I was reciting from childhood memory is on exactly that subject. It's about someone who is facing his twilight years, metaphor, and was wishing that he could somehow put the brakes on it. Time, you old gypsy man, will you not stay, pull up your caravan just for one day? See what I mean? Mm-hmm. I guess he doesn't want to die, is it what it comes down to. Selfish of him. <laughs> you know, and we talk also about how we can't spare the time or we use up our time. We put aside time to do things. We waste time and we save time. This is all linguistic scaffolding, as James Geary would say, on the time is a limited resource metaphor. Now, there's a related metaphor that's a kind of more distilled, more specific version of this. I'll talk about it in just a second, but first I want to take a break to mention our sponsor, Audible.com. Okay, Mike, as often in these conversations, I'm a little curious when we're going to get back to the nominal subject of the program, Fiscal Cliff. And by the way, when I start my second career as a DJ, I will be DJ Fiscal Cliff. What kind of music will you play? What's great about DJing is you can sample little Jay-Z, a little Usher maybe, and I think maybe Lloyd Blank fine. <laughs> I could dance to that. Fiscal cliff. It will be very bad, bad. Hugely bad, hugely negative, very bad. Hugely negative, hugely negative fiscal cliff. 
All right. I was going to mention our sponsor, which of course is audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of premium spoken audio information on the internet. You can choose at Audible's website from more than 100,000 audiobooks. Audible has a special offer. If you sign up for a free 30-day trial membership, you get one free audiobook of your choice. I often make a recommendation, and you know we're talking about time right now. There's a great audiobook version of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. The whole thing runs only about three and a half hours. That's unabridged. It's not a long book. And it's read by a guy named George Eustace, who has a fantastic kind of stately British accent. I really love the book, and I love the audiobook version of it. So if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon, you could sign up for this free trial. You could get The Time Machine as your free book or one of literally thousands and thousands to choose from. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either The New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. Give it a try. Use the URL that Audible set up for us. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Nice work, Mike. Uh, Now, at the risk of doing something precipitous, you were going to get us back to fiscal cliff? We're still far from the cliff. I mentioned that there's another more distilled version of the time is a limited resource metaphor, and that, of course, is time is money. Oh, like uh, there's an expression, time is money. (laughs) Yeah, and there are a whole host of phrases, again, in our language that help to sort of build this metaphor, right? We spend our time well or poorly. We budget our time. There may be something unforeseen that costs you time. We talk about borrowed time and about investing our time in someone else. If you've noticed, these systematic metaphors take the form of X is Y, where X is the relatively abstract idea or concept, and Y is the more physical, visceral experience or idea that is the basis of the metaphor. Understanding is seeing. Time is money. Economy is topography. (laughs) You really want to get to the fiscal cliff, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) I just thought maybe eventually. No, no, just go ahead. So we talked about time is a limited resource and time is money. There's still another metaphor that gets at a somewhat different quality of time. And I'll give you a hint. This is a quote by Virgil, the Roman poet, an English translation of a quote by Virgil. But meanwhile, it flees. Time flees irretrievably while we wander around prisoners of our love of detail. It's a great quote. I love that quote. But you see what I'm getting at, right? Tempest Fugit. Come on, Mike. Uh, I know I'm slow, but I don't see no reason for you to swear at me. (laughs) The Romans may have said time flees. We say time flies. The metaphor is time is motion. Here again is James Geary. We can see the effects of aging, for example, and we can see a piece of fruit rotting, but we can't actually physically describe the passage of time. And so we use a spatial metaphor to refer to a chronological event. Forward, or or what is in front of us, is the future, and the more distant future is further ahead of us. We can't see over the horizon, for example. Time is like a river, and it flows on by, and as it flows on by, the past goes behind us. So for something that's very abstract and very difficult to comprehend, like the passage of time, we resort to some of the most simple physical experiences that we have. 
Now, as Geary points out, if we had different physical experiences, different bodies, different senses, a different planet, then many of our metaphors would be totally different. So crabs, for example, they walk sideways. If crabs could talk, they would describe progress in difficult negotiations, perhaps, as sidling towards agreement. (laughs) And they would find that their best days might still be beside them rather than ahead. So you see how our physical experience of the world really deeply, deeply informs not just the way we talk about our experiences, but the actual way we interpret our experiences. And I think that's the sort of hidden power of metaphor. It's not just the kind of clever or flowery way of describing what we feel, but metaphors really shape what we feel. They frame what we feel. They frame what we think. So if Virgil were a crustacean, he might have said, time is lateral, just always so, you know, lateral. I think he was more eloquent than that. <laughs> well, you know, when you crabs, he also drinking beer and he, you know, he's... He was a little drunk. He's just like, time is so lateral. <laughs> <laughs> you know the way Verge is. All right. So I just want to recap with what I think is a really helpful structure in thinking about this. We have hundreds of these conceptual metaphors that are reflected in our language. There's a subcategory of them for which the Y component of the X is Y equation is very tied to our experience as human beings living on this planet with gravity and other physical laws and all of the various limitations and possibilities of our bodies. These are referred to as primal metaphors. Understanding is seeing is a good example of this. A further subcategory of these primal metaphors is what are called spatial or orientational metaphors. Up, down, forward, back, things like that. These spatial metaphors are particularly powerful for us, particularly old, and profoundly influential on the way we think and interact with the world. What leaps to mind is what's good is up, what's bad is down. Exactly. And think about all of the ways that we incorporate the metaphors good is up and bad is down into our language. As Lakoff and Johnson point out, happy is up, sad is down, right? I'm feeling up. That boosted my spirits. We talk about people being in high spirits or something giving them a lift. Conscious is up, unconscious is down. We get up, we wake up, we fall asleep, we drop off to sleep. Health is up, sickness is down. We're at the peak of health. We fall ill. We talk about health as declining if we're getting sick. High status is up, low status is down. We're in a lofty position if we have high status. We rise to the top. We're at the peak of our career. We climb the ladder. We talk about upward mobility. Virtue is up, depravity is down. Things are high-minded. We take the high road. We take the low road. We have high standards. We talk about people being upright or underhanded. These are all a product of our bodies existing in physical space with gravity. Angels fall. The Dow Jones Industrial Average falls. And at last, there is nothing that falls more precipitously than a drop from a cliff. Yes, we're there. We're at the cliff. First, though, I think it's worth pointing out that the phrase fiscal cliff has some things going for it that are not metaphor related. It's very 
pleasing phonetically. Fiscal begins with an F sound, then it has a short I, and it ends with a hard C and an L sound. Cliff is exactly the opposite. It begins with the hard C and the L sound, then has the short I, and ends with the F sound. It's orally symmetrical. It also is rife with opportunity for wordplay. Cliffhanger, cliff diving, cliff... Uh, cliff notes. Cliff notes. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Media loves that sort of stuff, and they've taken advantage of it. But underneath all of that is a series of very powerful spatial metaphors that conjure up for us, unconsciously really, a kind of line drawing that moves along horizontally and then drops precipitously down. Now, feeding this image, as George Lakoff pointed out recently, is the metaphor that the economy, like time, is motion. Slope, hill, speed bump, all of these alternatives to cliff that were mentioned in that montage that we played earlier, still contain the notion that the economy is moving. Then we have the metaphors, the past is left and the future is right, which Lakoff says explain, quote, why the diagram goes from left to right when the economy is conceptualized as moving forward. Then, of course, we have good is up and bad is down, or a more refined version of that, success is rising and failing is falling. Lakoff believes these primal spatial metaphors form what he calls a neural cascade that he says is, quote, so tightly integrated and so natural that we barely notice them if we notice them at all. James Geary takes it, you might say, one step further. Here he is. So when you think about stock prices, when they're described as rising... They're always described as soaring or leaping or climbing, all action verbs that imply, they're metaphors that imply a living thing. But when we talk about house prices dropping like a stone or plummeting, they're all metaphors of dead things. Down is equated with death. Dead things fall down. They drop dead, literally. That's not even a metaphor. And we emotionally equate that with sort of economic death or financial death. So while the fiscal cliff metaphor may be misinformed in terms of its pure economics, the fact that it grabs people's attention is hopefully a good thing. So will there be a compromise? <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think so? I think it'll just be another fudge that'll, you know, kick the ball. You can't even talk about this stuff. Every other word is a metaphor. <laughs> Well, actually, he's got the metaphor wrong. I think they say kick the can down the road, not kick the ball down the road. <laughs> well, I think either one would suffice. But, you know, imagine if we were some kind of alien species that lived in zero gravity. Mm -hmm. The idea of up and down wouldn't really have the same kind of cultural cachet that it has for us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll tell you something. Google Maps would be pretty much useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then it would be like the Maps app that Apple made. Yeah, not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess Apple's never going to want to be a sponsor of this podcast. No, I, th I hope Audible stays with us because we've just crossed one off the list. All right. If you want to contact us uh, metaphorically or otherwise, please write to us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. 
please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, where you can leave a rating and a review. I want to thank James Geary. His fantastic book is called I is an Other, The Secret Life of Metaphor and How It Shapes the Way We See the World. I also want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's Podcasts. All right, Mike, this was an eye-opener. I'm just beginning to get my head around it. What's the matter? We done here isn't metaphorical enough? All right, let's just stick with that. We done here? (laughs) Yeah, we're done. Later, Gator. Gator.